the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. Wind and solar power are seen by many as the future of our power supply heralding us into a world of green energy with net zero CO2 emissions. But even if we were to transition entirely to these energy sources, it turns out that the misguided goal of net zero would never be achieved. And even if net zero were a worthwhile goal, wind and solar would not be the answer. The amount of energy they provide is nowhere near sufficient. And by being backed up by conventional power, they don't end up eliminating greenhouse gases at all. Yeah, exactly. And it turns out that nuclear power is the only reliable energy source that would be considered green if you consider emitting CO2 as not green, which of course is a mistake in the first place. But regardless, yet nuclear power is continuously being demonized by many governments and media as dangerous. Fortunately, we have a special guest today who will dispel this prevalent motion. My co-host, Mary Jean Harris. Go ahead, introduce our guest today, Brian Leyland. Yeah, for sure. Brian Leyland is a consulting engineer with a wide variety of experience in renewable energy. He has been responsible for the design of numerous small hydropower schemes and has acted as an expert witness for many people opposing wind farms in New Zealand. He is a member of the expert advisory group for the world's largest tidal power scheme in Kalkazar in India and is the 2006 Life Membership Award winner of the Electricity Engineers Association in New Zealand. He is a founding member of the New Zealand Climate Science Coalition and the International Climate Science Coalition. So welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. And it's a joy to be here. Yeah, it's a lovely great. day in New Zealand. I hope it's the same where you were. Yeah, and Brian just finished his rowing. It's not in his bio that Mary Jean read, but he's actually, you're the over 80 rowing champion for, for what area? Um, the World Masters champion. Oh, World Masters. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> great, great. So, and Brian only started rowing when he was 77. Is that right? Yes. Wow. <laughs> it's good hope for the rest of us because I'm only 70. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay, Brian. So starting out right away, let's get right into it. Why are wind and solar power never able to give us net zero emissions? Because we need to keep the lights on when the wind is not blowing and the sun is not shining. To do that, you would need a storage technology which is low cost and massive. You would have to have to store massive amounts of energy in the summertime and when the wind is blowing and deliver it at night and in on winter evenings when there's no wind. And it's a massive problem and there is no technology which is large scale and low cost. It just doesn't exist, and it's not on the horizon. Yeah. Without that, you have frequent blackouts, and you will destroy your economy. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think it was uh, Howard Hayden, a professor emeritus from University of Connecticut, who said that the biggest battery pack in the world, at least at that time, was in California. And he said if the grid required California to be supported by the battery pack, it would mm -hmm. last for 102 seconds. And he laughed. He said, well, that would give them enough time to find a flashlight. <laughs> so do you think he's exaggerating or is it that bad? Yeah, he's not exaggerating at all. It is that bad. 
People just don't realize how much energy you need to store. It's enormous. Mm. Yeah. So, so generally speaking, then, um, batteries, we, is it a technological breakthrough or is there some sort of fundamental reason that we can't store enough power with batteries? I think it's a fundamental reason. The technology doesn't exist. Batteries are <laughs> a hugely expensive. I worked out that the cost of batteries to back up the supply of a wind farm so that it was steady during the year would be 70 times the cost of the wind farm. Oh wow! Wow, it's not not worth it. (laughs) You can just have the regular power, and it was twice the cost of the wind farm. It would be too much, and so you can't you can't get anyway from a battery that costs seventy times much a wind farm to a battery that costs maybe the same as a wind farm. A seventy times reduction using this technology can't be done. There is no technology that will do it. So when they give us X billion dollars to build a wind farm, they're not counting the batteries, I take it. No. No, they rely on, on somebody else to provide the storage or the backup. It's usually mm-hmm. backing up for the open cycle gas turbines and, and pay for it. So mm-hmm. they have free riding on, on all the other consumers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a city like Ottawa, which is one of the coldest capital cities in the world, I mean, we get minus 30 on a fairly regular basis. Uh, would you, you'd, you'd have to get the batteries warm too, I assume, right? Because if they drop to minus 30, they're not going to be very good. Yeah. But then you're storing an enormous amount of energy in a relatively small space. And if they catch on fire, you've got problems. And one of the big problems with designing battery installations is to make sure they don't catch on fire. And if they do, they don't set the next one on light, to set the next one on fire. They're dangerous things. Mm-hmm. And, and why are batteries more dangerous from a fire perspective than, let's say, uh, a burning gasoline-powered car? Well, if you've got a gas-powered car and you spray water and you put the fire out because you've deprived it of oxygen, but a battery carries all the energy it needs inside it. It doesn't need oxygen. So you can't put it out with water or anything else. What huh. they do apparently is, is throw a big blanket over the car and let it burn out, and the blanket stops this fire spreading. But mm-hmm. there's, there's, there's no way, and and that, you know that's why electric cars on ships are bad news and have now yeah. sunk two ships. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Norwegian, and so- Norwegian ferries won't carry electric cars. I'm, so I'm told. Wow. And I guess you wouldn't want to park them underground, big in. No, a lot of insurance companies uh, will not insure an apartment building that charges electric cars uh, Mm -hmm. in the basement. Mm -hmm. But then you have to charge it outside. And the new industry in um, California is nicking the charging leads because the charging leads are very expensive, about $2,000 each, some of them. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lovely lovely, uh, business in flogging the leads. So you can't yeah. charge them inside, and if you charge them outside, somebody nicks the leads. What do you do? Yeah. So if I understand rightly, then the reason the batteries, actually wind and solar power, can't bring us to net zero is because of all the requirement for traditional power as a backup. Is that the correct answer? Yeah. Yeah. And people right. are more and more advocating open cycle gas turbines. Well, they're much yeah. less efficient than a combined cycle gas turbine, so you're wasting gas to back up something that you could do without. 
Okay, so let's see if I understand this right. The reason we're using open cycle instead of the closed cycle is because what? You have to go up and down quickly with a backup? Yeah. yeah. Okay. An open cycle gas turbine can change load rapidly because it's only a gas turbine, but a combined cycle's got a steam station on the back end, and the steam station limits the speed that you can change the output of the gas turbine. Mm -hmm. So if you had a choice between running a combined cycle turbine as your source of electricity or mm -hmm. having an open cycle turbine backing up wind and solar, will we see any improvement in greenhouse gases by having the wind and solar? You'd see some, but I, I can't imagine it would be very... I don't think it'd be very much, given also that you use quite a bit of carbon dioxide is involved in making wind farms. Oh, yeah. And building right. the, wind, the windmills and everything. So they've got a big deficit anyway, and they don't produce much energy. So the the deficit per unit of energy is, is higher than it would be otherwise and a I conventional guess, station. Yeah, and I understand China make the wind farms largely with coal-powered electricity. That's their source. I think about 80% of their power comes from coal, yes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and there's other kinds of uh, storage for energy. So what about hydro pump storage? Is that good enough to make wind and solar feasible on a large scale, or is it, does it have similar problems to battery storage? Uh, it's much uh, misleading information. Conventional hydro pump storage, which was introduced mainly to back up nuclear stations that didn't like changing load, it stores energy for about six to 10 hours. And all it's designed to do is pump madly in the early hours of the morning to keep the nuclear station at full load and then discharge that energy in the morning and the evening peaks. So it only has to have about six to 10 hour storage. So you can find a, a, a site which has got a sufficient space for a pond that will hold a few hours of water one but one at the bottom station and one at the one at the top quite easily. But when you want to store energy for wind, you, you're storing a hundred times as much, maybe a thousand times as much. So suddenly you have to find two huge reservoirs, five or six or seven hundred meters above each other and not too far distant. And there's, mm -hmm. there's investigations going on for a scheme in New Zealand. And there's going to be 24 kilometers of tunnel between the two. <laughs> wow. And even then, they haven't got a big lower reservoir. They've got a big upper reservoir, but not a big lower reservoir. So it won't do the job anyway. It's, it's designed to back up dry years with we don't have much hydropower. But it can't back up wind and solar because it would need to pump frantically, maybe for days when the wind's blowing and the sun's shining, and it would run out of water in the bottom pond. Ah. Oh. Yeah. So there, although theoretically pump storage will do the job, in practice you can't find the sites you need at a cost that you can afford. Mm -hmm. And this scheme in New Zealand has already costed at more than a nuclear power station, which actually oh. generates energy rather than <laughs> wasting 25% of it. Oh, yeah. So that's interesting. Wasting. Because I guess the energy it takes and the friction within the whole system takes energy. And as a consequence, you don't get as much back as you put into it when you're pumping the water uphill, right? Yeah. 25% is pretty well standard. Mm -hmm. But with a longer, with longer pipeline, it would, would be higher. Mm -hmm. So it strikes me that there wouldn't be very many geologic areas that would have enough 
uh, storage capacity at both the low end and the high end to make this realistic in most places. You might find a few dozen in the world. And you've oh, got to have makeup all. water and you've got a big lake and you get evaporation losses. The evaporation losses from one in New Zealand are a meter a year. So, um, mm. you know, all that, and you've, you've got to pump water up to make up the evaporation. But another big problem mm. is that with, when it's used for nuclear, it's working hard. It's working its water twice a day, pumping it up and down and being very busy. This one, yeah, the one in New Zealand, pumps its water up and then waits for a dry year, maybe five years, and then it drops it down again, and then it pumps it. So it's storing all this water for five years. It's paid a lot of money to pump it up the hill. And there's all the capital charges on the pumping costs, so mm. it just doesn't it just doesn't add up. And uh, with wind and mm. solar power, you've probably got seasonal differences and things. So even then, it might ex exchange its water once every two or three months, yeah, rather than twice a day. Mm -hmm. I, I should emphasize that you're not anti-hydro, are you? Because you actually run a hydro station yourself. Yes. No, I'm not at all anti-hydro. I've been in the hydropower business all my life. I've written a book on it. Oh, is that right? Okay, we should link to that under the podcast then. Is it available yeah. on the internet? Can you see it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, great, great. Maybe you can email me that and I'll include it in, yeah. under the podcast. So, yeah. so the bottom line here is that hydro pumped storage, where you pump yeah. the water uh, during periods when you have lots of wind and solar to a high reservoir and then let it run down through turbines when you have no wind solar this is just not realistic for most of the world is that your conclusion that's exactly right and you just can't and this this group is looking in new zealand the government's formed a group called the new zealand battery well they're looking all over new zealand to find suitable sites the one called onslow is the only one that they've found and it only does dry years and it won't do wind and solar and they haven't found anything mm. that's good enough to do the job they need. And they're looking at all sorts of other things like hydrogen storage and none of the things they're looking at have got any chance of success. None of them. Mm -hmm. Not so you mentioned hydrogen storage for storing wind and solar power. I guess is the idea that you actually use the electricity from wind and solar to conduct electrolysis and so pull hydrogen out of the water. Is that what they're doing? Yes. And you lose about one two thirds of the energy in the process. Whoa! And what you've got to have is a very large amount of conversion facilities, electrolyzers, sitting there waiting for the wind to blow and the sun to shine. So their mm. capacity factor is probably going to be in the thirty percent or less. Mm -hmm. so, so you've got a big capital expenditure on the electrolyzers and um, not not used very intensively. So basically, it's very expensive to produce. Then you've got to store it. And I just looked up on the internet, and at the moment, there's lots of potential ways of storing it, a whole lot of them, and they all look very expensive and unproven. Mm -hmm. So there's enormous amount of research going into it. People are assuming that it's practical, and it would seem that the researchers are saying we haven't got there yet. So it's mm -hmm. stupid for people to bet on it now when the researchers are saying we haven't found a, a really economic and satisfactory way of storing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's, I, it's dangerous too, I presume, when you're storing hydrogen. 
yeah, there's there's big problems. The uh, explosive range of concentrations of hydrogen is much wider than natural gas and burns without a, a discernible flame. You can't smell it. So it's it's much more dangerous than natural gas. Mm -hmm. And, right. you know, you really think, well, why are we doing this? What's the objective? Yeah. Well, you know, what? when I was in graduate school, they were going, this was back in the set, no, early 80s, that's right. Uh, they were going on and on about the hydrogen economy. It wasn't going to be long before hydrogen would be our currency instead of electricity. Is this, why hasn't it happened? <laughs> 40 years later, we haven't made any progress. <laughs> That's what it boils down to, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's a dream. And why do why do we need to do it? Mm -hmm. And isn't there the I mean, Basically, it's only a way of conveying energy. It doesn't produce energy, not like digging coal or or pumping gas. It doesn't. It isn't energy in itself. It's just a way of transferring it. Power lines mm -hmm. do that mm -hmm. very well, and with much less losses and no conversion costs. Yeah, yeah. And I and understand the, the hydrogen molecule. The hydrogen molecule is so small you can't pump it through normal natural gas lines. Is that correct? Uh, it, it's the leakage rate's quite high. But if you pump it through an ordinary standard steel gas line, hydrogen, you get carb uh, hydrogen embrittlement. So it affects the steel structure. And I think the pipeline's liable to suddenly crack open. I'm not quite sure, but it's a major yeah. problem. Uh -huh. So you uh -huh. have to have special pipelines made of special materials in order to convey it. So your existing gas, to gas pipeline's no use. Yeah. Small yeah. concentration of hydrogen with the natural gas. But if you're going to do that, why don't you have all natural gas? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and I guess this is all driven by the climate scare, isn't it? Yeah. It, but they're not looking at it logically. <clears throat> it's uh, clutching at straws all over the place. They look at it logically, as we'll probably discuss. They go nuclear. Yeah. Now, another kind of... Uh... Another um, thing that people have been trying to introduce is carbon capture and storage. Is this the same as CCUS? And what is CCUS? Carbon capture and storage is ridiculous. The big problem is for every ton of coal you burn, you produce two and a half tons of carbon dioxide. Mm. So there's enormous amounts of carbon dioxide to be stored if you want to compensate for burning coal and presumably they do and then if you look at the fact that man-made emissions are only four percent of the total exchange of carbon dioxide between the earth and the atmosphere um even if we eliminated them all it wouldn't make any difference so if we store the millions and billions of tons of carbon dioxide and we could store it it'd be, it still wouldn't make any difference because it's only affecting 4% of the carbon dioxide exchange. So the wow. whole thing's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So just to emphasize then, more than 19 20ths of the CO2 would still come into the atmosphere from nature if we eliminated all our CO2. Yeah, it's exchange between the ocean and, and the earth and the atmosphere. <clears throat> Some things give it off when the sea temperature increases 
uh, carbon dioxide goes into the atmosphere. When it when it decreases, it absorbs carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And plants are giving off carbon carbon dioxide when they rot, and absorbing carbon dioxide when they grow. Mm -hmm. And they love carbon dioxide, and they would be very happy if it was twice as high as it was. And yeah, commercial yeah. greenhouses spent millions of dollars every year burning gas to increase carbon dioxide levels to about 900 parts per million, which is double the natural one. And they get 40% uh -huh. increased production. Yeah, yeah. I was and reading in, in New Zealand, the... they pay carbon tax on the gas they burn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was reading that one of the food, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was reading that one of the potential problems is concerning carbon dioxide storage underground is if it ever leaked since it's heavier than air it would form mm. like a bubble of co2 mm. in which there was it was displacing oxygen and you know it's interesting brian you've probably heard of the lake lagos uh co2 eruption in africa yeah, in, right. in, in the cameroons <laughs> where there was a natural release of co2 mm. and this huge bubble of co2 roared down the valley killed hundreds of livestock and it was interesting, there was one story about a man who saw, you know, people dying around him. It's invisible, it's odorless. He didn't know what mm. was going on. And he jumped on his motorcycle and he rode like crazy. And by very good fortune, he rose, he rode in the right direction and got mm. out of the out of the bubble. Mm. Yeah. But I mean, it strikes me that you wouldn't want to live beside a large CO2 underground storage site, would you? No, definitely not. Yeah. But why do it? It makes plants grow. Yeah, exactly. It reduces starvation. It yeah. reduces deforestation. It reduces desertification. It's good stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So once again, we have another project which takes a huge amount of energy, doesn't accomplish anything, and in this case, actually is potentially dangerous because the CO2 could escape. You know, it's interesting. My uncle was a geophysicist in Calgary, Alberta, and he said, well, you know, if if people are worried about groundwater leaking from underground nuclear storage sites, they should be super worried about CO2, which is a gas leaking through geologic formations and getting out. So, I mean, I guess the potential for leakage of CO2 is much higher than radioactive water, right? Oh, yeah. And don't forget that radioactive activity declines over time. The mm -hmm. carbon dioxide doesn't. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a risk forever. Well, that's actually the topic for the second half of our interview, because we have to go for a break now. But we're going to get into nuclear because it's the only way that you can actually reduce greenhouse gases while still powering our society. So Mary Jean Harris, my co-host, and I with our guest, Brian Leyland, we'll be right back after the break. If you're enjoying this episode, we ask that you donate to the International Climate Science Coalition or ICSC at icsc-climate.com to help us pay for the show. We get about 50,000 listeners per program, so it's certainly worth continuing. However, to generate this large an audience on a regular basis requires that we pay for wide distribution of the program on many platforms and across social media. ICSC must also pay contractors who conduct background research to help us prepare for the interviews. A contractor to ICSC then edits the audios of the interviews before they're uploaded to the web so that the final product is both informative and enjoyable. 
If you want ICSC to continue to bring climate and energy realities to the public through this program, please visit icsc-climate.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. Once again, that's icsc-climate.com. Donations large and small are greatly appreciated and quickly acknowledged. Help us bring our program, the other side of the story, to thousands more. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution, the miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. We wouldn't go a day without washing our hands, brushing our teeth, and washing our nose. Well, wait, we wash our nose? Yes, the number one place where bacteria, viruses, and pollen enter the body is through the nose. So the average person breathes over 23,000 times a day. That's 23,000 opportunities for bacteria, viruses, and irritants to get into your nose and make you sick. For an extra layer of protection, wash your nose with Clear. That is Clear, X-L-E-A-R. Clear's drug-free nasal spray features xylitol, an ingredient proven to block adhesion of many nasty bacteria and viruses, and effectively clean, not just rinse like a saline, but wash your nose. Clear nasal spray quickly alleviates congestion, opens your airway, and ensures your body's natural defenses are strong. Read the research studies for yourself at clear.com. That's X-L-E-A-R.com. Protect yourself from the pathogens and junk you breathe. Pick up a bottle for you and your family today. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix Rx. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. 
Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. So we're back with Mr. Brian Leyland, a consulting engineer with wide experience in renewable energy. He's been very much uh, into hydropower, that he runs his own hydro station. We can talk about that a little later. And he's also an expert advisory group for the world's largest tidal power scheme in India. Okay, so he's our guest today. So he's somebody we really want to listen to on all these issues. Yeah, so the next thing we want to talk about is nuclear power. So why do you think that nuclear power is the only way to have clean energy for our society? Um, Because it's the only reliable, low-cost energy source that doesn't emit carbon dioxide. And if you believe that that's dangerous, then you should be in favor of nuclear power. And 25 years ago, when I believed in global warming, I realized that the people who were pushing global warming also hated nuclear power. And this didn't make sense. So I looked a bit further, and and the more I learned, the more I became skeptical of global warming. But if if your objective is to reduce emissions of carbon dioxide from power generation, nuclear power is by far the best option. Hydropower is also good, of course, but there's a limit to how much there is in the world. And it provides about 15, 20% of our electricity at the moment. And there's not much way it's going to get very much higher than that. And it's got mm-hmm. quite severe environmental effects. And large dams, in my view, are much more dangerous than people realize. 
and the safety precautions for large dams are woefully inadequate. Right. What about the safety for um, for nuclear powers? Nuclear power is proven to be the safest form of power generation oh. in the world by a factor of about 100. And, and so it's enormously safe. And this, this is a proven record. So it's, ama- it's actually amazing how safe it is. In terms of nuclear safety, how is nuclear waste disposed of and the radiation exposure reduced in the nuclear power industry? Well, um, nuclear waste is not really a problem. First, there's little, very little of it. Secondly, it decays very rapidly because of its intensely radioactive, it's decaying very fast. And thirdly, the radiation is not effective over a long distance. A few years ago, I was in the big hall in Sellafield in the UK, where they, the main nuclear processing place in the UK, where they store 75% of the UK nuclear waste, most of which comes from weapons, not nuclear power. And I stood in this big hall, and there were hatches on the floor with canisters of high-level waste in, stacked in, these, in the tubes beneath. I was five feet away from a canister that if I stood beside, I would be dead in two minutes. And I was in normal levels of radiation. And they said, if we put one of these in the swimming pool and you kept two meters away from it, six feet away from it, you would be safe. So shielding against it is just dead easy. And then everybody says it lasts for millions of years. It takes millions of years to the decay back to normal levels of radiation. But after about 800 years, it's no longer dangerous. Mm. And the the levels of radiation that are dangerous are enormously higher than what people regard as dangerous. So uh, no matter which way you look at it, nuclear waste is just not a problem. It's Mm -hmm. a political and social problem. Technically, it's a doddle. And so when you build a large dam, you're building something that might have a life of 2,000 years. There are six Roman dams still in existence. Oh, wow. We build them, we build them with a lifetime expectation, design life, of 150 years. And nobody works out how you're going to dismantle it at the end. And the answer is, if it's a big dam, there is no safe way of dismantling it. Hmm. And if it's filled up with sediment and you break the dam down, you send a huge wave of sediment down the river. And the damage that that'll do. And if large dam bursts, uh, if Kariba in Africa burst, it did kill two and a half million people. It would kill that, that number. Yeah. 50 died wow. at Chernobyl. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and what a contrast. And, and Chernobyl was, was uh, the, the modern equivalent of a Model T Ford. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody says you shouldn't drive a modern, a modern car because a Model T Ford didn't have seat belts. But when they say we shouldn't build a nuclear station because of Chernobyl, that's exactly what they are saying. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand that there hasn't been. Yeah. I, I understand there hasn't been a single death in North America from nuclear stations, aside from things like falling off a scaffold or things like that. There's been zero deaths from actual radiation in North America. That's correct. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Fukushima yeah. has not and will not kill anyone from radiation. That comes yeah. from the International Electricity and Nuclear Energy the yeah. International Committee on the Safety of Nuclear Stations. Yeah. Well, you know, Jay Lair, who was our co-host, of course, on this show, he forecast when Fukushima happened that there would be no deaths due to radiation. And he yeah. got death th- he got death threats from environmental yeah. activists for having yeah. said this. And he said that the only deaths were due to the relocation of vulnerable people, like senior yeah. citizens. That was what caused the deaths, not the radiation. Yeah, more than a thousand people died as a result of the relocations. And the same at Chernobyl, because they moved masses of people out and just dumped them mm. and, and gave them food and vodka, and they all died of desperation and, and alcoholism. Wow. So in Fukushima's case, if they hadn't evacuated people, would anybody have died from radiation? No. I, uh, the workers had got to the highest levels of radiation, and somebody outside is not going to get such a high level, and they all survived. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible that one person's death was hastened by his radiation exposure. Mm-hmm. But that's all. Yeah, wow. But you know, Terry Rogers, who you might have met, he was a nuclear engineer here in Canada. He was actually one of my professors. He taught me thermodynamics and heat transfer. He said that you could hold a used Candu reactor bundle in your hand safely after only 400 years. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's interesting because they had a thing in Canada called the Seaborne Commission. And its mm-hmm. job was to look at the safety of deep geologic storage of these um, used, you know, Candu reactor bundles. And they mm-hmm. concluded it was extremely safe. But it wasn't safe politically because the people didn't realize it was actually safe. So they don't do it. They're not yeah. storing waste. They're not storing the waste deep underground in the geologic formations at all. Do you think that's a mistake? Yeah, it's quite safe. But one of the big problems with the geological disposal is I think in, in England, they decided that they would drill holes in the, in the granite, put it in and pour concrete in it, which is a really good idea. And then some stupid committee said, oh, no, we've got to be able to get at it in case we want to reprocess it in the future. So the scheme that they had, which was perfectly safe, easy and simple and everything, went out the window. And they had to find a place where they could store it and retrieve it, if necessary, in a thousand years' time. (laughs) So is it safe storing it? The the American one's got the same problem. Just bear it and forget it. Yeah, I mean, this, well, this really sensible thing to do is to drop it into deep ocean sediments. Oh, right. I mean, with its range of six feet or something, and there's there's hardly any life down there. It's perfectly safe. Inherently yeah. to say so. Yeah. Well, a lot of the nuclear fears are, are really ridiculous. You know, it's funny when they were launching the Cassini spacecraft to Saturn, uh, it had a radioactive isotope on it as a mm-hmm. it was a radio thermal generator to make electricity and the environmentalists went to court. They tried to get a launch, the launch prohibited because they were afraid the waste would expand, you know, yeah. that it would, if the shuttle or sorry, if the spacecraft blew up, it would actually throw waste all over the place. And, you know, it's interesting when they had the launch, they had their children at the front of the line, right beside the launch, as close as you could get to protest the danger of the launch. And you say, <laughs> like, if it's that dangerous, if it's that dangerous, why do you why do you have your children there? <laughs> One of the really crazy things about this 
is you ask everybody if they would have radiation treatment if they have cancer. Right. And when you get radiation treatment for cancer, the cancer cells themselves are exposed to fatal levels of radiation. And they they bring it in, rotate it around your body so the rest of the body doesn't get involved. But the tissue just outside of the cancer gets extremely high levels of radiation, not quite enough to destroy them, but obviously you can't um, sort of differentiate. So if radiation was dangerous, those people would later die of radiation-induced cancer, and they don't. Maybe maybe 5% do, but that's all. But Uh, what, what more evidence do you need? Yeah. yeah, and radiation is natural, isn't it? I mean, it's all around oh, yeah. us. Yeah, go for go for a flight in an airplane, and you'll get more more radiation than is allowed to come out of a nuclear station. Go yeah, and, and I heard go and stand by a coal-fired station; it puts out more radiation than a nuclear station. Yeah, I heard that some of the pro-nuclear people talk about a banana equivalent because if you have a banana on a granite countertop in your kitchen. Yeah you're apparently getting more radiation than a lot of the people are scared about. <laughs> yeah, it, it is said that if you s- stood in Grand Central Station, which is made of granite, for a few hours, you get more radiation than you would have got from Three Mile Island. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, of course, the, that, the real sad part there is that with Three Mile Island, I think it's important for people to understand, first of all, nobody died. And yeah. secondly, the containment structure actually worked. It kept yes. the hydrogen bubble from escaping out into the local yeah. area. Yeah. But it was happening at the same time as Jane Fonda's movie, The, um, the China Syndrome, where yeah. it was a sensationalist movie about. And, and so apparently that contributed to really not building any nuclear reactors for decades in the United States. Yeah. And I have a suspicion, but it's a, it's a suspicion only, that various organizations have been sponsoring anti-nuclear. May mainly to maybe to promote wind and solar, mm. but yeah. we know that the, the Russians certainly promoted environmentalists in Europe and the UK to oppose fracking, so that people would continue buying Russian gas. Oh, and even right. now, even now with the crisis that they've got there with Russian gas in Ukraine, they're still not fracking. Oh. England's got two gas wells which could produce tomorrow, and they're not opening them. But they're dr- doing more drilling in the in the North Sea. It's crazy. Yeah, but there's yeah. certainly the possibility that the Russians have seen it in their and maybe others have seen it to their advantage to sponsor anti-nuclear power station stuff. Yeah. One of the sad things that I find about the nuclear industry is that groups like the World Nuclear Association are climate alarmists. And you might remember that um, Rich, his last name was Rich. I can't remember his first name, but he was the head of the World Nuclear Association. And he gave a speech, which I think was even more extreme than Al Gore. He was saying Mm. not millions, but billions of people will be affected and die on all continents because Uh, of of greenhouse gas emissions. And we actually sent a letter to the World Nuclear Association saying, we stop it. I mean, you can can promote nuclear power in a very sensible, engineeringly, uh, you know, 
correct way without promoting the climate scare. And they wrote back, and it was interesting, the person that wrote back was their climate change advisor <laughs> who wrote back from the World Nuclear Association and said, oh, no, no, there's this great crisis and our nuclear power is going to stop it. I, mm. I think it's a real mistake, don't you, Brian, that yeah. they use climate mm. scare to sell reactors. Yeah, you don't need to. There's plenty of good reasons for nuclear power anyway. And doing scare scaremongering is not good top good tactics in the long term. It certainly works yeah. in, the short, in the short term. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about your hydro station? Because I think that's kind of exciting for listeners to hear about. Since you actually do generate electricity, you don't just talk about it. Yeah. Well, about 20 years ago, a group of us um, got together and there was a, an old dam that was built in 1922 up in the hills in Golden Bay in the South Island, which had supplied a small hydro station that fed an ironworks that went broke as it should have. Uh, so <laughs> their idea was to use this dam and build a new power station, new new pipeline and power station. So we all got together and and and, and built it. And I designed most of it and commissioned it. And uh, now things have evolved. My wife and I are two thirds owners, and another friend of mine is one third. So uh, we generate about 20% of the power for the local region and sell it into, oh, wow. the, into the electricity market in New Zealand. And because oh, wow. the electricity That's market is, is not very good, we make quite a bit of money. <laughs> oh, excellent. Wow. <laughs> Got to transfer your engineering skills into making money. That's, that's wonderful. So, and this is what I find really interesting because while you've done renewable energy projects, you have a hydro station, you still support fracking, you still support nuclear. I mean, I think this is a great example of uh, all of the above, all of the sensible things above, where you wouldn't, I mean, if you were actually designing an ideal electricity mix for the United States, what sources would you choose and, and how much of each would you specify? Well, I'll wear my climate skeptic hat first. My climate okay. skeptic hat. Coal, gas, fracking, some nuclear, uh, no wind, no no solar. And uh, I wouldn't bother with tidal power. I wouldn't bother with wave power. I wouldn't bother with all these other fringe things that have been investigated for 40 years. And all they've done is produce research grants. So that's the obvious way of doing it. Yeah. Well, the United States is the Saudi Arabia of coal, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. And New Zealand's yeah. got vast amounts of coal. Now, wearing my uh, my hat, which doesn't be believe that carbon dioxide's evil stuff, would be all <laughs> nuclear um, and backed up with six hour, six, 10 hour pump storage and some gas because you probably couldn't find enough pump storage. But if, if you mm -hmm. want to be carbon dioxide free, that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and generally speaking, I mean, our reactors are very different to Chernobyl's, aren't they? Oh, yes. Yeah, well, Chernobyl was primarily built to produce weapons grade plutonium. And the, the early British reactors were the same. Mm. Presumably in the US ones. The, the, the primary objective was weapons grade 
plutonium and by chance they produced a lot of heat so they turned it into a power goody <laughs> yeah yeah and and i understand also chernobyl had graphite moderators and you yeah. know just the audience to understand you have to slow the neutrons down enough that they actually will cause the chain reaction to occur the moderators actually caught on fire didn't they yeah yeah but the british reactors early british reactors were all graphite moderated too uh -huh. But Chernobyl didn't have any secondary containment, and every Ooh. other reactor in the world just about has. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. uh, and, and I guess North American reactors are water, either normal water or, in Canada's case, heavy water, mm -hmm. which is yeah. heavy hydrogen. Um, yeah. and, and that, I mean, you can't burn water, right? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. But so no, also, Chernobyl was seriously maloperated. They were carrying out some hairbrained experiment at the time, they switched off some of their alarms. They switched off some of their protection. And the, the reactor suddenly took off. They got warnings that was happening because they'd switched off the protection. Nothing went to shut it down. I mean, it was a yeah. complete freak and stupid accident. And got no relevance to modern nuclear power. A modern yeah. nuclear power station cannot melt down. The yeah. very yeah. physics of its arrangement. It's not a matter of whether it's got cooling water in it. If you've got a pebble bed reactor or a molten salt reactor, there is no way that they can melt down. It's mm -hmm. just impossible. That's yeah. so safe. I mean, yeah. why, why are they regulated at all? I don't know. Yeah. And Everybody the, thinks they have to be. Well, if you want to yeah. regulate something, you regulate large dams. Yeah. Yeah. Now, actually, that's a topic. We have a few minutes to go. We have about eight minutes. Uh, can you talk about that? Why are the large dams potentially dangerous? because there are no strictly enforced international safety standards that there are some safety standards, but they're not good enough. And there's nothing looks at the fact that this is going to last maybe a thousand years. What do we have to do now to make sure it can still operate for a thousand years safely and be maintained? And what do we, how do we monitor it? And what do we do when the silt gets up to the level of the power intakes so that the turbines all get destroyed by silt? And, and suddenly, without earning any money, and we've got this monster dam that needs regular maintenance and inspection and looking after, and it's not no income. Mm. So, you, so if you get a nuclear station and say it's the end, end of its life, how do I shut it down safely? And the answer is you put a fence around it, and you put a big sign on the fence saying nobody go inside. Uh -huh. Nobody will get hurt. You cannot do that with a dam. You mm. shut it down and you say, we need experts here continuously for the next 1,000 years or more <laughs> monitoring it and doing what's necessary to maintain it. If you, if you say, well, shut down the power station, let the water go over the spillway, well, the spillway will wear out. It's not designed for continuous operation. It's only designed to carry spill. And... It's designed on the basis that you can pull the lake level down and maintain the spillway. But if you're spilling the whole time, you can't get at the spillway to repair it when it inevitably fails. When the spillway wow. fails, it'll take the dam with it. Wow. Wow. So we're hugely dangerous. This is like a time bomb, man. It's going to go yeah. off some centuries in the future. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So they're just not taking this into account when no. they're making the design. No. And in, in, in my case, on my 
special there is spillway gates. And you have to be able to open the spillway gates on a, in a flood. And you've uh-huh. got to have the power supply to open them. Most of them have, require a power supply. So you can't rely on the on the main grid system because the power line might have gone out. So you want to have diesel generators. And diesels have a 50% a very high start failure. And they don't get maintained and the batteries go. And somebody says, oh, well, you know, this is long, as long as we test it every three months, it's okay. If you had to test your car every three months to make sure the safety devices weren't working, you'd throw it away. Yeah, yeah. So so if but, I understand rightly, then the spillway, that's the side path for the water to go to bypass the turbine, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's and got the, gates on it, so you can yeah. store more water. Yeah, but there's a South African group that I'm in contact with that invented a gate which doesn't require an external power supply or control signal or anything. And if the water level is dangerously high, it will open. You cannot stop it opening. Mm. So I try and interest all the all the hydropower engineers in this gate, and they say they're not interested. Mm. I get it's something new. You know what we're doing is all right. We haven't had any problems. We look after it carefully. And they don't realize yeah. in the rest of the world things don't get maintained. Yeah, yeah. I'm working in Nigeria on dams that were built 40 years ago and have never been maintained. Oh, wow. And what we're doing, I'm on the advisory group, and we've recommended that they overhaul their whole management so that they've got a central group responsible for it. So it's environmentalism. Is that they're bringing them back to where they were 40 years ago and handing them over to the same people who've demonstrated they can't maintain them. Crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So if environmentalists want to protest about something to do with energy, they should protest the construction of these large dams that have no yeah. contingency plan to actually handle the dam centuries in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Wow. And when you put got, got you know you're disturbing stream flows, the Mekong's flow is, is is all different as a result of the storage dams upstream, and uh, there's all sorts of environmental problems with them yeah and i presume then that when they're doing the economics of a large hydro dam they're not considering the expense 500 years in the future of actually dismantling it not even considering the expense 100 years in the future of doing a major overhaul oh wow or what they do when it's silted up america's got a lot of dams apparently that are close to being silted up and nobody's talking about it and nobody knows what to do about it wow Wow. So I should tell my environmentalist friends they got to look into this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. But the, you know, there should be provision in every dam for draining the silt from beneath the power intake so that if it gets up to the, the close to the power intakes, you can suck it away through a low level outlet. I've written papers on this. Nobody cares. Nobody's interested. You don't get a whole oh, lot of people wow. saying, wow, we'd better do something. Yeah. yeah. Can you share you those? Make that a, a regulation for all new dams have to have a, a silt bypass under the power intakes? No, wow. nothing like that. Yeah, if you could share those papers with me, I'd like to read them and, and share them mm. with others. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so uh, what are your next activities in the climate and energy field coming up? Continue pointing out that 
nuclear power is the way to go if you want no emissions. Continue to point out that global warming is the biggest hoax in the history of the world. <laughs> yeah. Continue to point out that large dams are seriously dangerous and we need much better safety precautions. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now that last one, I think, is something the, pub the public just don't know about. So, yeah, once again, I ask you to share those papers with me. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, we might want to actually do a full show on that because mm -hmm. this whole idea is it's news to me. I didn't know this, that the mm -hmm. hydro dams are potentially a huge time bomb that mm -hmm. will be set off at some point centuries in the future and that they're just simply not factoring this in. Yeah, yeah for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, that's been a lot of fun, Brian. <laughs> so our guest today has been Brian Leyland, who's actually on the board of ICSC Canada. And Brian's a consulting engineer with wide experience in renewable energy. He's been responsible for the design of numerous small hydropower schemes and acted as an ex expert witness for the many people opposing wind farms in New Zealand. And I think our audience now knows why. <laughs> because it, <laughs> they, they don't make any sense and you can't store the power properly with these, with these batteries. So this is Tom Harrison, my co-host, Mary Jean Harris, and our guest, Ryan Leyland, signing out from the other side of the story. We ask that you donate to the International Climate Science Coalition, or ICSC, at icsc-climate.com to help us pay for the show. We get about 50,000 listeners per program, so it's certainly worth continuing. Please visit icsc-climate.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right-hand corner of the homepage. Help us bring our program, the other side of the story, to thousands more. Thank you.